York, this is Democracy Now! Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. Temperature records are continuing to be shattered across the globe as July has become the hottest month ever recorded on the planet. More than 170 million people are under a heat alert in the United States. We'll speak to two journalists covering the climate crisis, then to Capitol Hill. I'm Greg Gassad. I'm the new member of Congress representing the heart of Texas from San Antonio up to Austin, Texas. Uh, and I'm on thirst strike. I've been out here uh, over eight hours now with no water, no food, taking no breaks from the Capitol steps to protest against Governor Abbott taking people's water breaks away from them. We'll get Congressmember Kassar's response to the White House's new measures to provide workers relief from extreme heat. Then President Biden's designated national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, on August 28, 1955. 14-year-old Emmett Till was tortured and lynched in Mississippi. We'll speak to Emmett's cousin, who was with him the night of his lynching. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. Standing in the light of wisdom, grace, and deliverance. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Federal prosecutors have filed new charges against former President Donald Trump and another one of his aides in the indictment around his mishandling of classified documents. The charges accuse Trump of attempting to, quote, alter, destroy, mutilate or conceal evidence, unquote, and inducing others to do so. Prosecutors also added a new count under the Espionage Act for showing classified national security materials to visitors to his Bedminster Golf Club. The revised indictment states Trump and Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira pressured the director of IT at Trump's Florida estate to delete security camera footage so it could not be seen by a federal grand jury. According to the indictment, de Oliveira said, quote, the boss wanted the server deleted. De Oliveira is also accused of lying to federal investigators when he denied having knowledge of boxes of documents stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Prosecutors contend de Oliveira oversaw and even helped move the boxes alongside Trump aide Walt Nauta, who has already been indicted. This superseding indictment is not to be confused with a possible third indictment against Trump related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election for which Trump's lawyers met with special counsel Jack Smith's office Thursday. New climate data show July is on track to become the hottest month in human history, with global temperatures rising to about 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. On Thursday, the head of the World Meteorological Organization said climate action is not a luxury, but a must, while U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres scolded world leaders over inaction on the climate. Climate change is here. It is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived.
the air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. The UN's warning came as hundreds of wildfires fueled by record heat continue to burn out of control around the Mediterranean. In Algeria, Croatia, France, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Tunisia and Turkey. In China, Typhoon Daksuri made landfall today in the southeastern Fujian province, sparking fires, downing power lines and shuttering schools and businesses. On Thursday, the storm lashed southern Taiwan after battering the northern Philippines, where it killed at least 39 people. Here in the United States, over 170 million people are under extreme heat alerts as sweltering temperatures spread across the country. On Thursday, President Biden announced a series of measures to tackle the impacts of the extreme heat. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers in the awful heat. But Biden made no mention of the fossil fuel industry's role in the climate crisis and continued to ignore calls from climate activists and scientists to declare a climate emergency. We'll speak with Congressmember Greg Kassar, who went on a thirst strike this week in Washington, D.C. In more climate news, the Supreme Court has cleared the way for construction of the contested Mountain Valley pipeline to resume. The court on Thursday lifted a halt on a section of the project that had been issued by a lower court earlier this month after a challenge by environmental groups. Leaders of Niger's military have declared their support for the mutinous officers who declared a coup Wednesday against the nation's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Two days after members of his own presidential guard deposed him, President Bazoum has refused to step down. It's not clear who's currently running Niger's government. On Thursday, supporters of the coup set fire to the headquarters of Bazoum's governing party. Meanwhile, The Intercept reports a leader of the attempted coup was trained by the U.S. military at the army base formerly known as Fort Benning, named after a Confederate general, which was recently renamed Fort Moore. Just last month, coup leader and brigadier general Musa Salobarmo met with the head of U.S. Army Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Jonathan Braga, at a U.S. drone base in Niger. African officers trained by the U.S. military have taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008. The World Health Organization is warning of a growing health crisis for the 3.4 million people forced to flee fighting in Sudan with rising rates of infectious diseases reported among displaced populations. Heavy fighting continues to rage in the capital Khartoum, where airstrikes and artillery fire have killed at least 16 civilians this week. In Sudan's western Darfur region, a leader of the Masalit community says more than 10,000 people have been killed in the past two months, more than 300,000 people, the vast majority of the Masalit, have fled across the border into neighboring Chad. Refugees describe a harrowing journey to escape attacks by militias and fighters with the rapid support forces. I've been here for 13 days, and the people we left behind were killed in their homes. There are others who are trapped there, and the road remains unsafe. If there are three or four people, they'll kill them and take their belongings. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin welcomed African leaders to St. Petersburg for the annual Africa-Russia summit, coming just days after the Kremlin pulled out of the Black Sea grain deal that allowed safe passage of shipments of food and fertilizer from Ukraine. Heads of state from 17 African countries joined this year's gathering, down from 43 African leaders who attended in 2019. Putin said Russia will be able to replace Ukrainian grain exports sports and promise free shipments of food to six African nations. Our country can replace Ukrainian grain both commercially and as a free aid to the poorest countries in Africa, especially as we are again expecting a record harvest this year. Russian President Putin also pledged to consider a peace plan from African leaders to end the Ukraine war. Among those spotted on the sidelines of the summit was the leader of the Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries, Evgeny Prigozhin, who was photographed shaking hands with a senior ambassador from the Central African Republic. It was the first time Prigozhin has appeared publicly inside Russia since he led a failed revolt against Russia's military in June. The United States Senate has approved the largest military budget in history. Its passage sets up a partisan clash with the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, which narrowly approved a military budget packed with anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQIA amendments. On Thursday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called passage of the Senate's $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act, quote, a glimmer of hope for the American people. And a bipartisan process is precisely what the American people are yearning for. In a fractured Congress, Democrats, Republicans coming together to provide something as critical as our national defense. Just 11 senators voted against the record military budget, six Democrat, four Republican and Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. Senators overwhelmingly rejected an amendment offered by Sanders that would have slashed the military budget by 10 percent. Ahead of the vote, Sanders said the U.S. should prioritize spending on health care and social programs over a bloated military budget. Unbelievably, our life expectancy is actually declining. Our child care system is dysfunctional. Millions of parents unable to find affordable sites for their kids. We have a major housing crisis. 600,000 Americans are homeless. And oh, yes, the planet is on fire and the world we are leaving future generations will be increasingly unhealthy. But somehow we never have enough money to address those crises. In El Salvador, human rights advocates are warning of severe due process violations after lawmakers approved the use of mass trials for the tens of thousands of people who've been arrested under President Nayib Bukele's brutal crackdown on gangs. Salvadoran officials said up to 900 defendants could be prosecuted at one time. El Salvador has been under a state of exception for 16 months, suspending several constitutional protections and leading to the arbitrary detention of over 70,000 people without access to legal representation or fair trials. Meanwhile, Honduras is planning to build an island prison to detain hundreds of suspected gang leaders. This comes after President Xiomara Castro earlier this month approved another extension of a state of emergency that's been in place since last year to tackle gang violence. In Ecuador, authorities have recovered the remains of people killed during a prison riot over the weekend in the city of Guayaquil. At least 31 people were reported dead, but the toll could be higher. 
Ecuador's prison system has been plagued with violence and abuse, with prisoners facing overcrowded and squalid conditions. President Guillermo Lasso has declared a state of emergency in Ecuadorian prisons. Over 400 people have died in prison riots in Ecuador since 2021. Back in the United States, data shows the rate of gun suicides among black teens has topped the rate among white teens for the first time as gun suicides reached an all-time high last year. The data compiled by the Centers for Disease Control also shows black children and teens have a gun homicide rate 20 times higher than white children and teens. Guns remain the leading cause of death for children and teens, with the rate of gun deaths among minors soaring by 87 percent over the last decade. Last year, over 48,000 people in the United States died from guns, an average of one person every 11 minutes. And in Texas, the Houston Independent School District's eliminating librarian positions at 28 schools in the upcoming school year and will replace some libraries with so-called team centers, essentially disciplinary centers for students. The widely blasted move comes after state Republicans forcibly took over the Houston Independent School District earlier this year. Those most affected will be children of color in lower income areas. Meanwhile, two Texas bookstores and three national bookseller associations have sued over a Texas bill requiring private booksellers to rate books based on levels of, quote, appropriateness and banning, quote, sexually explicit material from libraries. Valerie Kohler is the owner of the Blue Willow Bookshop in Houston, a co-plaintiff in the lawsuit. We're not going to read them all. And for us to have to rate them, I think, sends a message to the librarians and to the students that um, you're allowed to read this, you're not allowed to read that. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the climate crisis as temperature records continue to be shattered across the globe. On Thursday, the World Meteorological Organization announced July is on pace to be the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. Here in the United States, 170 million people are under heat alert. On Thursday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the world has entered the age of global boiling. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. It is still possible to, meet, to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change but only with dramatic, immediate climate action. Here in the United States, President Biden unveiled new measures Thursday to combat the crisis, but resisted calls to declare a climate emergency. I don't think anybody can deny the impact of climate change anymore. 
There used to be a long time when I first got here, a lot of people said, oh, it's not a problem. Well, I don't know anybody. I shouldn't say that. I don't know anybody who honestly believes climate change is not a serious problem. Just take a look at the historic floods in Vermont and California earlier this year. Droughts and hurricanes that are growing more frequent and intense. Wildfires spreading a smoky haze for thousands of miles, worsening air quality. The record temperatures, and I mean record, are now affecting more than 100 million Americans. We're joined now by two guests. Darna Noor is fossil fuels and climate reporter at The Guardian. Her recent piece, Biden announces new measures to protect Americans from extreme heat. Her new investigation, Project 2025, plan to dismantle U.S. climate policy for next Republican president. We're also joined by David Wallace-Wells, writer for New York Times Opinion and columnist for The New York Times Magazine, who's been writing about climate change, how it's accelerating. His latest piece is headlined A Grim Climate Lesson from the Canadian Wildfires. He's also author of the book The Uninhabitable Earth. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! David, let's begin with you. If you can respond to what President Biden announced yesterday, and does it go far enough? I think the short answer is no, it doesn't go far enough. Um, We're talking about a really dramatic summer here in the United States. I think many Americans are living with some amount of climate fear, 170 million Americans under extreme heat advisories. Um, And what the president offered was a pretty meek rhetorical gesture um, mixed with some very small policy measures. Um, I'm glad that he's speaking about climate as opposed to being silent as he has been for a long time. But to my mind, um, he's not meeting the American public where they are at all. And Arna Noor, your response, you wrote a whole piece on this. I would have to agree. Um, I, I agree with David that I think most of what we saw was rhetorical gesture from the Biden administration. Um, I do. I did speak with experts who described some of the steps that he took as positive. Um, you know, for instance, rolling out new funding to uh, uh, help cities plant trees to make sure that people can have shade in extreme heat, um, making sure that cities can fund cooling centers, improving weather forecasting, But as you mentioned earlier, Amy, uh, what Biden did not mention at all was the term fossil fuels. He didn't really say anything about the need to end the fossil fuel economy. He certainly did not declare a climate emergency, which is something that activists have been pushing him to do for years at this point um, and could unlock a number of powers to help him take on the crisis without congressional approval. Uh, And so I think that what we saw from Biden was, you know, really awareness raising and and some kind of uh, modest policies, but, but nothing that takes on the scale of the crisis that we're seeing right now. Um, He also ordered the Department of Labor to put a hazard alert for outdoor workplaces. Darna, can you talk more about this and the other measures around workplaces? Uh, Could he also mandate paid water breaks and workplace protection gears like canopies of shade, fans, mist machines, etc.? The heat hazard alert that Biden issued yesterday was interesting. Um, in, in one sense, it was unprecedented. It was the, the first heat hazard alert um, that will go out to employers across the nation, um, sort of reminding them of the rights that workers have on the job and the ways to best protect workers from extreme heat. Um, but I think what it really also made uh, many experts think about is the fact that his Department of Labor is still working right now to craft a heat standard uh, that would do much more to protect workers. Last year, uh, the Department of Labor said that they were working on one of these standards. Um, uh, Officials have been talking about it for something like 50 years. 
Um, and that would drastically expand, uh, you know, the ability for the government to do things like, um, you know, recommend or even mandate water breaks or shade breaks and things like this. Uh, but that process could take years to complete. And so I think that what we saw, again, was, you know, an attempt to use the powers that already exist. Um, but I think what experts would say is that we really need to expand those powers in a huge way. David Wallace-Wells, um, we recently interviewed a TV meteorologist in Iowa who just quit because, as he reported, the connection between weather, which is what so many people tune into on radio and television just to find out what the weather is. But when he made that connection between weather and climate change, he got death threats. Um, you're constantly talking about the connection between weather, climate change, and your most recent piece is about the uh, Canadian wildfires and how they connect to all this. Can you explain? Well, um, global heating produces much more intense fire conditions. Um, in Canada, it, they've, um, it's produced a totally unprecedented fire season. We've already seen uh, more than 25 million acres burn in Canada, which is two and a half times the size of the largest American wildfire season in modern history. Um, that Those fires are still burning. They're still burning out of control. And to some extent, this is actually by design. Canada is so large that firefighters can't possibly suppress those fires when they begin. Um, it's understood to be better forest management now, better fire policy to let fires burn so that forests can regenerate um, on their own. But when you're dealing with fire conditions like climate change has created, that means some unbelievably large and intense fires producing huge amounts of carbon emissions. In this case, probably more carbon this year than Canada will produce from all of its other industrial and economic activities combined. And also the smoke that we're so familiar with in the U.S., and which is not just bothering cities in Canada and the U.S., but even across the Atlantic in Europe. Um, now, I think when most people see the news, see news events about, you know, news coverage of heat waves or wildfires, I don't think it's that hard for them to make the connection to climate change these days. I think the jumps that are a little bit harder and would be a little bit more helpful for more people to make is the jump from climate change to the question of climate action, why we're not doing more and who is standing in the way. Um, so when I see, you know, when I see news coverage of extreme heat, you know, extreme heat warnings, um, I don't worry too much that we don't put the word climate change in those headlines. I think most people understand that. What I think fewer people understand is why we're not doing more to protect ourselves against this really quite dramatic threat, which is coming at us, as you say, considerably faster than we anticipated even just a few years ago. And talk about what those kind of measures would look like. Again, as you say, you talk about not only wildfires across Canada, um, uh, as well as Greece, Algeria, and dozens of other places around the world. Well, I mean, the short answer is to limit all of these impacts. We need to reduce carbon emissions very rapidly. And while we have had an incredibly impressive renewable rollout over the last couple of years, all of the graphs are pointing way up. The next decade looks uh, much more promising for renewable energy than most advocates even believed was possible just a few years ago. Nevertheless, they've barely dented, if they've dented at all, the emissions that we're producing from fossil fuel generation. So we haven't actually reduced the share of global power production that comes from fossil fuels from this remarkable renewable rollout. We're just using those renewables to add to our power capacity. And that's really, you know, the change that we need to make. We need to be producing so much renewable now, renewables now that we can actually draw down fossil fuels and draw them down relatively rapidly, um, rather than simply using them to supplement our consumption patterns and, and power production. And unfortunately, we, we haven't really seen a sign of that. At best, it looks like we're going to be looking at um, 
sort of a, a plateau for emissions over the rest of this decade. And we know from all of the scientific warnings that's that's simply inadequate if we have any hope of meeting some of our more ambitious climate targets. In a moment, David, I want to ask you about what would be the most effective legislation in the United States to deal with climate change. But Darna Noor, I wanted to first go to your piece. Um, if you can explain what Project 2025 is and what you found in your investigation. Absolutely. So Project 2025 is essentially a group of dozens of right-wing organizations. We're talking about think tanks, publications, and the like. And it was convened by the Heritage Foundation, uh, which is, I think, in the climate world, very well known for promoting climate denial for decades um, and for even longer, uh, promoting promoting this sort of anti-regulatory stance. Um, So these groups came together in an attempt, essentially, to advise whoever uh, the next president is if that person's a Republican. So any Republican who takes office uh, in the in next year's presidential election. Uh, this is the second time that uh, the Heritage Foundation has led the creation of a sort of transition plan aimed at a Republican president. Uh, in the early 80s, we saw the Heritage Foundation create one of these plans um, that actually went on to have a huge influence on the Reagan administration um, and was framed as a sort of way of taking on the out-of-control regulatory state Um, And in this particular iteration, um, there's a lot of focus in their new transition plan on unmaking environmental regulations. Um, I'm happy to talk more about this, but there's a number of uh, previous Trump appointees who have written, essentially, uh, proposals to uh, undo the many powers of the of the federal administration from the EPA to the Department of the Interior, uh, all in an attempt to uh, sort of lessen the federal authority Uh, to regulate fossil fuels and essentially to boost uh, those polluting industries. You know, it's interesting. Polls show now that Biden and Trump, even though he was uh, indicted again yesterday, are neck and neck in the polls for president. Um, uh, You talk about the Department of the Interior part of the plan um, in this 2022 plan being written by William Perry Pendley. You note he controversially led the Bureau of Land Management under President Trump and worked to eliminate drilling regulations. Talk more specifically and name names. Absolutely. Uh, So as you mentioned, William Perry Pendley uh, very controversially led the Bureau of Land Management under President Trump, controversially because he was actually never confirmed by the Senate. Uh, This was the case for a number of Trump appointees. Um, And he also was known before he had a role in the Trump administration for writing this book called uh, Sagebrush Rebel that was really uh, in praise of uh, Ronald Reagan, of Ronald Reagan's anti-regulatory sort of agenda. Um, It's, it's, I think, uh, unsurprising to to see his name in a sort of uh, proposal that's aimed at, uh, you know, ending the ability for for federal regulations to have any real uh, impact on the environment. Um, previous reporting from e News from Scott Waldman there found that uh, Mandy Gunasekara had written another chapter uh, focused on remaking the EPA, um, really focused on shrinking its authority, both by laying off staff, uh, by cutting budgets, um, with an especially uh, big focus on sort of cutting environmental programs uh, like environmental justice programming and public outreach programming. Um, another name that uh, that was in the, the proposal was uh, Bernard McAmey who wrote a chapter on the Department of Energy, again, sort of in an attempt to say we should shrink the authority of uh, the the Department of Energy. Um, He previously served as an advisor to Ted Cruz. And before that, he led this far right organization called the Texas Public Policy Institute or Texas Public Policy Foundation, rather, 
uh, that really aims to undo environmental regulation and fight renewable energy at the state level. Uh, and so we're really seeing, I think, a who's who of the far right um, in this attempt to, you know, not only sort of be in the next president's ear if they're a Republican, but also, you know, sort of recommend personnel and say, hey, here's who you should staff up with. What role does billionaire Charles Koch play in this project, Arna? So the Heritage Foundation, who, again, are the far right uh, foundation that sort of convened this group, Project 2025, uh, has historically had ties, financial ties to the Koch brothers, um, who are, of course, uh, billionaires who made their fortune in fossil fuels and related industries. Uh, they are all, the Heritage Foundation is also a member of the State Policy Network, um, which is a sort of coalition of these extreme right wing groups that have uh, targeted regulation, especially climate focused regulation uh, in states for for many years. Um, and I think, you know, I would just say, I guess it's no surprise that uh, that uh, an organization with ties to, um, you know, to 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 people who have made such a great fortune in uh, the industries that are. Um, that, that must be regulated in order to take on the climate crisis are, um, you know, have, have historically been tied to a group that is trying to uh, push that agenda to the presidential level. As we begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask David Wallace-Wells to respond to um, what Dorna is describing right now um, and also talk about what needs exactly to be done. I mean, we're speaking today, the day after the uh, Supreme Court um, has just okayed, uh, cleared the way for construction of the contested Mountain Valley pipeline to resume, lifting a halt on a section of the project that had been issued by a lower court earlier this month after a challenge by environmental groups. Yeah, I think we're in a situation as a country now where we're pursuing what was used to what used to be called an all of the above energy strategy, and that's pretty catastrophic for our climate goals. Which means, in general, I would say at this point, the Republican Party across the country is mostly standing down in resistance to um, to renewable energy. The Project Twenty Twenty Five um, memo is really concerning. But when I look across the political landscape, I see there was basically no um, no campaigning against the IRA in the in the um, midterm elections anywhere. And in Texas, where there was an effort to kneecap renewable power um, a few months ago, ultimately that failed because even conservative Republicans in, in Texas understood that doing so would um, raise energy bills for consumers there. Um, nevertheless, we're also moving forward with a lot of new fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and we're sort of that, you know, that's the path we're following. We're kind of doing both at once. So in the big picture, I think what we need to do is find a way to accelerate the, the good stuff and, and draw down the bad stuff. And functionally, for me, what that means is finding a way to ease the rollout of renewable power, build more transmission lines so that we can um, expand our grid and accommodate much more renewable electricity over the next few years without at the same time giving benefits um, to new infrastructure on the dirty side. And unfortunately, to this point, most of the so-called permitting reform proposals that we've heard have been balanced in precisely that way. Um, they, they do make some accommodation or allow for some acceleration of renewable build-out, but they also allow for a lot more dirty energy construction. And we just can't have that if we um, are hoping to hit the targets that are um, not just set by the scientific community, but the somewhat less ambitious ones that have been embraced by the Biden administration. And finally, David Wallace-Wells, um, I mean, the 
uh, phraseology of the U.N. Uh, Secretary General Guterres talking about global boiling, taking on the fossil fuel industry, industry seems to fly in the face of what's happening with the U.N. Climate Summit, the one that's coming up in UAE. In January, the UAE confirmed that Sultan al-Jaber had been appointed the president of COP28. He is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the biggest oil producer in the United Arab Emirates, the 12th largest in the world. Your final thoughts on this? Well, just as context, I think it's important for people to understand the U.S. is actually the world's largest producer of oil and the world's largest producer of gas. So when we point our finger around the world and shake our hand at other people's bad action, we should remind ourselves how poorly we're doing. But in general, um, Guterres has... uh, has taken a really unusual turn as secretary general. Um, he has made himself, you know, a climate forward, climate first rhetorical world leader operating somewhat independently from the other structures of the UN, including the COP process. Um, he's made himself the rhetorical leader on climate anywhere in the world. And it actually is a kind of, um, a shaming contrast to compare the language that he uses to the language that leaders like, you know, Joe Biden here, but, um, leaders all around the world have used much more muted rhetoric. And I think while some of his language is a little overheated, at least for my taste, um, I do think it's quite striking how few other figures of political prominence anywhere around the globe are speaking in these urgent terms. And it's a reminder of how far um, the world is from really reckoning with the state of the climate crisis and the near future that we're now rushing headlong into. Um, We need more people feeling the urgency that the secretary general feels and giving voice to it so that you know, the everyday Americans, everyday people all around the world understand that their leaders see the existential saga we're living through in the same terms that they do and um, are at least trying to move the ball forward as opposed to letting it, you know, letting it, um, letting things stay as they are, which is not an acceptable state. David Wallace-Wells, we want to thank you for being with us. New York Times opinion writer, columnist for The New York Times Magazine, and Darna Noor, fossil fuels and climate reporter for The Guardian. We'll link to both of your recent articles at democracynow.org. Coming up, Texas Congress member Greg Kassar will be with us. He just had an eight-hour thirst strike on Tuesday on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard as his state outlaws water breaks for people who work outside. Back in 30 seconds. that by the selector. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. As temperatures soar across the United States for a second month and nearly half of Americans face heat advisories, President Biden announced new steps Thursday to provide relief. I'm announcing additional steps to help states and cities deal with the consequences of extreme heat. First, 
I've asked Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su to issue a heat hazard alert. It clarifies that workers have a federal heat-related have federal heat-related protections. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers in the awful heat. Second, the Acting Secretary of Labor will work with her team to intensify enforcement, increasing inspections in high-risk industries like construction and agriculture. This work builds on the national standards the Labor Department is already developing for workforce and workplace heat safety rules. This comes after Texas Congress member, former labor organizer Greg Cassad, held an eight-hour thirst strike Tuesday on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard, which includes mandatory water breaks for workers. He was joined by elected officials and advocates, including United Farm Workers legend Dolores Huerta, as well as workers like Fernando Arista, an electrician from Austin, who spoke out against a new Texas law banning water breaks. Proponents of this bill, they talk about business. They say it'll help out business and it'll help out the Texas economy. Well, we workers are part of the Texas economy. And if it'll help out businesses, it'll help out businesses at the exploitation of workers. At least 2,000 workers in the United States die every year from heat exposure. On Monday, Texas Congressmember Kassar and more than 110 Democratic lawmakers sent a letter to the Department of Labor and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, urging them to fast-track federal protections for outdoor workers in order to prevent more deaths. It cited the recent deaths of two workers in Texas, quote, in Dallas, Texas, a USPS employee of over 40 years died while on his route in 115-degree heat. In Harrison County, Texas, a 35-year-old lineman working to restore power died likely from heat exhaustion. For more, we go to Capitol Hill to speak with Congressmember Greg Kassar of Texas, whose district stretches from San Antonio to Austin. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Congressmember. We hope that you're now getting plenty of water. Uh, but talk about back home in your state. What's happening to workers who work outside? And talk about that thirst strike you went on Tuesday. Amy, thanks so much for having me on and covering such a critical topic that everyday people are talking about at home, but usually doesn't get enough attention here on Capitol Hill. We are experiencing a global heat wave, the hottest July in recorded history. In San Antonio, we had the hottest two weeks in our history. And during this heat wave, our governor decided to sign a law taking workers right away from them to a water break. And so we decided to fight back. We fought back in the traditional way of a letter with over 110 members of Congress and U.S. senators. But we decided to push back also with direct action in the kind of tradition of Dolores Huerta and the United Farm Workers, in the recent tradition of politicians like Wendy Davis staging a filibuster for reproductive rights or Cori Bush sleeping on the U.S. Capitol steps to prevent evictions during the pandemic, we held a thirst strike uh, where I stood on those Capitol steps in the sun for about nine hours from morning until I had to go inside and vote. But we also used that opportunity to raise the voices of workers so the president could hear them uh, and finally enact workplace protections, dignity and decency on the job, water breaks, shade, these basic rights. And if the president gets that done, he can overturn 
these extreme corporate right-wing leaders like Greg Abbott and protect workers, not just in Texas, but across the country. Congressman, remember, this isn't your first third strike. You did one in Austin in 2010. You were the youngest council member in Austin. In Dallas in 2015, one of those who joined you this week at your third strike on Capitol Hill was Jasmine Granillo, the sister of Randy Granillo, a construction worker who died from heat stroke on the job in 2015 and was denied a water break at his construction job. This is a clip from the PBS documentary Death on the job with one of Granillo's family members describing what happened to him on the day he died. Randy started feeling sick at 10 a.m. in the morning. He told his boss that he wasn't feeling well and he was never told he could stop working. They just shoved him aside. His temperature was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time he got to the hospital, his organs, his heart, his pancreas, and all of his organs. There was nothing they could do. And this is a Texas state representative, Armando Wall, speaking in 2021 in the state legislature about Randy Granillo, the construction worker in Dallas named who died from heat stroke, whose family fought to pass, uh, protect other workers from the same fate. Randy would work from 7 a.m. members to 11 p.m., some weekends included. The day he passed... He complained to the contractor at 10 a.m. that he couldn't feel his hand. By 12 p.m., he stopped talking. By 4.47 members, 4.47 members, he passed away. Roendi died in the hospital at 7 p.m. His body temperature reached 109, 109 degrees, according to the medical examiner's report. Roendi's stomach was empty when he died. He was working 16-hour days in July without receiving water breaks or meal breaks. To honor the death of their son, Roendi Granillo's parents led the, fight, led the fight at the city of Dallas to win a water break ordinance. They were committed to protecting other families from losing a child to a heat-related illness. From the Texas State House to where you are, Congress Member Greg Kassar, in the U.S. Capitol now, as you're a Congress Member from Texas, can you go more into detail? I think people around the country are just shocked to hear that the Republican governor of Texas, Abbott, has signed into law um, a bill that overturns municipal requirements for water breaks in this record heat, among other overturning things that it overturns, uh, that it prevents in municipalities. It is a slap in the face. It is dangerous. It'll get people killed. But most of all, it's disrespectful to working people. And when people are astonished that Governor Abbott has signed a law taking away people's right to a water break, uh, I'm outraged, but unfortunately not surprised. Because this bill, taking away workers' rights, has been a top priority for big corporate interests in Texas for years. And that makes it a top priority for folks like Governor Abbott. And the only way we can take on that big corporate money is through organized people. And that's why I was so proud to stand on those Capitol steps all day in the sun alongside the Granillo family. 
to deliver them a United States flag flown over the Capitol on the eight-year anniversary of their brother and son's uh, death at age 25, his organs cooked by exploitation uh, and by disrespect of working people. But we refuse to let those workers just become a statistic. That's why we have to raise workers' voices. And I think the president calling out Governor Abbott and this law just two days after this strike should serve as an inspiration that workers organized can make a difference. The president listening is an important first step, but now he's got to do the most important second step, which is get something done. We have to declare a climate emergency, pass heat protections for all workers, and go beyond that. Give everybody the right to a union. Get everybody a living wage. Transition Texas workers from the fossil fuel industry to the renewable energy industry and save countless workers' lives in the future. Otherwise, we're all going to be paying for it. Critics have called uh, this bill in Texas, this now law, the Death Star uh, law, uh, which, of course, is a play on the Lone Star State, Texas. Um, How would what President Biden could do, how would it challenge what Abbott has done? How would it overturn this mandate that overturns municipal laws? In 2010, I led a thirst strike in Austin where we didn't drink water on the steps of Austin City Hall and that helped beat back corporate interests and got people the access to water breaks on the job in Austin. We did the same thing in Dallas in 2015. Now that Abbott is overturning those laws, we have a chance to go over his head. The president can put in place through his own authority, this doesn't require an act of Congress, federal heat protections that guarantee everyone across the country the right to a water break, the right to come off of a scaffold, the right to stop working and take a break if you're feeling sick in the sun. And that's what we need as temperatures get worse because this summer has been bad, but we know the next one can only get worse after that. So we need to get that uh, action immediately done. You said in an earlier segment that sometimes that takes years and that's unacceptable. And that's why we need people organizing and raising their voices like they did at this thirst strike so that we could start overturning oppressive actions by right-wing governments in the South, in the same way that the Voting Rights Act, signed by a Texas president because people of conscience here took on oppressive governors and governments in the South, the Voting Rights Act brought voting rights back uh, to the South. We We have to do the same thing on reproductive rights, and we have to do the same thing on workers' rights as well. We can't just give up because governors uh, are participating in the cruelty Olympics as people like Abbott and DeSantis try to outdo each other. Congressmember Greg Casari, I want to thank you for being with us. Democrat from Texas, whose district stretches from San Antonio to Austin, held an eight-hour thirst strike Tuesday in the steps of the U.S. Capitol to highlight the need for a federal workplace heat standard, which includes mandatory water breaks for workers. Coming up, President Biden's designated national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. We'll speak with Emmett Till's cousin, who was with him on the night of his lynching. Back in 30 seconds. Bye.
Tammy Lou Harris singing My Name is Emmett Till. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, President Biden designated a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Emmett Till would have turned 82 on July 25th, but he was murdered at the age of 14 on August 28, 1955, dragged from his great uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, by two white men for allegedly whistling at a white woman. They beat, tortured, and shot Emmett, tied a heavy cotton gin fan to him with barbed wire, threw his body into the Tallahatchie River. His bloated, disfigured corpse was discovered several days later. His mother, Mamie Tomobley, had his body returned to Chicago for his funeral. She insisted on an open casket so the world would see the brutality of bigotry the ravages of racism. Jet Magazine and other black publications carried photos of Emmett's beaten, distended face in his coffin, shocking the world, galvanizing the civil rights movement to defeat Jim Crow. Three sites make up the monument to Emmett Till. The Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ on Chicago's South Side, where Emmett's funeral was held. The Tallahatchie County Second District Courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi, where Emmett's two murderers were acquitted by an all-white jury. And the Grabal Landing site along the Tallahatchie River, believed to be where Emmett Till's body was found. The memorial sign at Grabal Landing was made bulletproof to withstand the attempts to destroy it. It's been shot at and vandalized countless times. This comes amidst efforts to suppress such history from being included in the school textbooks led by Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. This is President Biden speaking Tuesday. At a time when there are those who seek to ban books, bury history, we're making it clear, crystal, crystal clear. While darkness and denialism can hide much, they erase nothing. You can hide, but they erase nothing. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know. We have to learn what we should know. Also speaking at the proclamation signing for the National Monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, was Emmett's cousin and best friend, Reverend Wheeler Parker, Jr. When I sat with my family on the night of terror, when Emmett Till, our beloved Bobo, was taken from us, taken to be tortured, brutally murdered, back then, when I was overwhelmed with terror, and fear of certain death in the darkness of a thousand midnights. In a pitch black house on what some have called dark fear road. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. Standing in the light of wisdom, grace and deliverance. That's Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. speaking between President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, the first black vice president of this country. Joining us now from Chicago, Emmett Till's cousin, his best friend, was 16 years old when he witnessed Emmett Till's abduction from his great uncle's home in Money, Mississippi, co-authored the book A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend Emmett Till. Reverend, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, You know, as we honor this moment, again, condolences, no matter how many decades later, on the death of your cousin that has shaped so much of your life. 
If you can talk about what this means to you, the designation of this national monument in three parts, and, you know, the, both the church where you are in Chicago, the, where the funeral was held, but also the site where it's believed his body was found at Gravel Landing, uh, and the courthouse where his murderers were acquitted. Your thoughts on what this means to remember these places? Well, as you know, uh, I'm very much aware that in America, the wheels of justice grind, but they grind slow. And we appreciate and respect and honor what has been done to put it on a national level, this monument. I think about the suffering, the pain that it caused us to get to this point. So we really appreciate it. At the same time, we have mixed emotions. And what was done should have been done. It's kind of like the anti-lynching law. It took 100 years and 200 times, but we got it done. And what do you want us to know about Emmett Till today? Carolyn Bryant just died, uh, the woman who made the first accusation about Emmett when you all went into the drugstore so many years ago. From the time that it happened... And I want the truth. I read the Look Magazine piece, and I knew that wasn't the truth at 16 years old. Felt so helpless, thought I'd never ever get a chance to bring the truth out. Now I'm able to speak to the truth sometime, and someone will believe me. It was 30 years before I was interviewed. And when I was interviewed, they said I alleged. So I feel good that the truth is out, some of the truth is out and believable. What did it mean to you to be standing there uh, at the White House um, between the president and the vice president as you remember that fateful night? Well, here I'm standing among some of the greatest people in the world. People who have a voice, people who can speak to the issues and I felt comfortable, I felt relaxed, uh, knowing that we were making progress. In 2000, I spoke to Mamie Till Mobley, um, your aunt, mother of Emmett Till, reflecting on the painful moment when she learned about her son's murder. When we knew that Emmett was dead, our first action, uh, we couldn't take time to cry. As I announced to the family what was happening, of course, there were screams. People were hitting the floor, and that uh, hysteria was setting in. And I, I remember standing, announcing that we don't have time to cry now. We've got to do something. I don't know what to do, and you've got to help me come to make some decisions. That's Mamie Till Mobley. And it's quite amazing, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., that it's not just uh, an Emmett Till memorial. It's also the memorial to the most determined mother, perhaps, on earth. I mean, Mamie Till Mobley, when she demanded that the casket be open for the funeral and the wake, for people to see her son's distended, um, brutalized head and that picture that went into Jet magazine, um, the bravery and what this inspired, 
right? This was the summer before Rosa Parks sat down on the bus. She was so sickened by these photos and the horror of what had happened to Emmett. And then the 1963 March on Washington, August 28th. People may not realize that was set for August 28th, because that was the day Emmett Till was lynched. Can you talk about how his death—his mother said he's going to die a hero—has um, shaped so much of the civil rights movement of today? Mamie and I both were raised in a very strong faith atmosphere. I pastored a church that started in her mother's house in 1926 now. She was well-prepared. It's like she was ready for this. And at the same time, there was a little confusion there, but she was prepared to step up and do what she did because of her religious background. And you should read, and everybody should have the opportunity to, to read her reconciliation speech of 2003. The country, the leaders, the world leaders should read that, and you get a better idea how she is prepared to do what she did. Great woman. Can you share with us a cherished memory you have of your cousin? He had come to Money, Mississippi, to be with you, with his other cousins, with his aunt and uncle, to get out of the Chicago heat. Um, mm -hmm. What do you remember most about Emmett? And what did you call him? Bobo. <laughs> uh, when you Bobo. mentioned his name, uh, I was trying to turn so you could see his face. He has, has a uh, magnetic smile. You can see it there? Yes, we can. For people who are listening, <laughs> uh, the reverend is moving over because there's a large black and white photo of uh, Bobo, of Emmett Till. That's Bobo. Stuttered every day, all day of his life. Yet instead, he was the center of attraction. Now, he, he was an innate leader. Never was lost for fun. Never had a bad day in his life. And when you mention his name, you got to laugh. If you know Bobo, you got to laugh. He paid people to tell him jokes. And he lived a good, full life for a 14-year-old. And is that you on the other side of that picture? Yeah, the big guy back there, that's me. <laughs> At that time, I think uh, uh, he probably was uh, 12 and I probably was 14. Two years later, he was gone. Well, Reverend Wheeler Parker, Jr., we thank you so much for being with us as you just got back from Washington for that proclamation, that announcement of the three-part national monument that honors Emmett Till and your aunt, uh, Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett's Bobo's mother. Thank you so much for being with us. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Rob Young. You can see transcripts of all of our shows. And also get video and audio podcasts at democracynow.org, as well as sign up for our daily news digest um, at democracynow.org. Or you can text the word democracy now, one word, to 66866, and that'll sign you right up. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for interns in our archive and development departments. Learn more at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.